Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started with one verse from Hebrews 11, one very familiar verse. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Let's pray as we get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the rain that blesses the earth straight from your hands. Thank you, Lord, for, thank you, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your provision and your care for us, even as we watch the, the world around us being showered in your grace. Lord, may we come ready to receive it, ready to soak it in today. Bless us in this study for the next 45 minutes. Prepare our minds to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Andrew, if you'd roll tape. dialogue out of that. That's weird. Worked last night. R2 came through very clearly and then none of the rest of it was supposed to be here. All right. Anybody recognize what that was supposed to be from? Yeah, yeah, which one? It was one of the good ones. Empire Strikes Back, very good. And does anybody remember the scene? For me, all I need to hear is the music that kind of says it. No, it wasn't R2 yet. It was the, uh, it was the X-Wing. It was the X-Wing on Dagobah. Uh, I, when R2 was beeping and worrying at the beginning, he was telling Luke that his ship was sinking into the swamps of Dagobah even further. And so Yoda says to him, um, always with you what cannot be done. And, so, and, Yoda, and Luke complains, as he does a lot in that movie, um, you know, master, moving around sticks and stones is one thing, but this is totally different. And Yoda bangs the stick on the ground and says, no different, only different in your mind. So Luke tries to lift it out with the force, and of course, and he fails. And so Yoda goes, into, Yoda goes into his little sermonette on, uh, on the force and modern and uh, you know, popular Eastern mysticism for us. And, links, and Luke stomps off, and Yoda lifts it out to the swelling strains of John Williams' beautiful score and sets the X-Wing gently down on dry ground. Ever remember this? And then there's that famous line at the end um, uh, when Luke plops down and says, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, that is why you fail. I want to play this for us this morning because it's, well, number one, it's a beautiful, it's, a, it's one of the most exceptionally well-crafted scenes in all of film history. The music, the imagery, 
Um, Frank Oz's Frank Oz turning this lump of lump of polyester into this believable character. Everything comes together for this amazing moment uh, that audience has never seen back in back in 1980 when that movie first came out. It is a sermon preached, and it was preached very very well when George Lucas released it upon the world. And it is a sermon. Uh, it was a lesson about faith, just like our lesson today. It was not the faith that we're going to study today, but it is what not only Eastern, many Eastern religions and mystic traditions believe about faith. It's what me, most modern Americans believe about faith as well. Faith is something inside us, and it is something that we work up, and uh, it is belief that we bring out of ourselves. And it is belief usually in ourselves. We're going to come back to that later today because we're talking about Westminster Confession, Chapter 14 of Saving Faith. If, you, if, you, if you're looking at this in front of you, one of the first things you might notice is that this seems out of order. It seems out of order because this lesson is three weeks late. I'm back. Sorry about the delay. So that's one reason. But even if I'd, pre, even if I'd taught this lesson on time like I was supposed to, it still seems odd. Shouldn't faith, shouldn't faith come much sooner as we've been talking about salvation for the last couple of weeks? Shouldn't faith and repentance unto life come? Because um, we hear so much of that in gospel presentations. If you look at the Ordo Salutis, faith is one of the results of regeneration. Regeneration or effectual calling, which we talked about a while back. Um, faith is one, repentance unto life is the other, which Renton, I think you did uh, not last week, but the week before last. Yep, which actually comes after this. So in most discussions of salvation, or the Ordo Salutis, as we've mentioned before, faith will come much sooner. Because it is faith that, as we will see, that's uh, that the instrument by which salvation is applied to us. But the divines are very intentional in their order, as ever. They have been, making, they have been driving home chapter after chapter after chapter about what God has done in man's salvation and how it is all of God. Faith hasn't been mentioned before. Back in chapter 11, um, it said, They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. And again, in, in section 2 of chapter 11, Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is alone is the alone instrument of justification. So we're coming now to something that's been mentioned and, and, under, and, and mentioned, uh, but, not full, but not fully gone into yet. And that's what we're doing today. If you remember back to regeneration and its fruits, what were some of the fruits of regeneration that we've looked at? Justification. Came after that. What else? Sanctification. Adoption. All these things flew out of, all these things are a result of, um, of regeneration. And they were all based upon faith. So let's read now from uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, section 1. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, it is increased and strengthened. That's it. Very short little opener on faith. But as usual, there is a lot in there. 
Think back to the elements of salvation that we've already considered. Think again about what happens if we put them out of order. What if we begin with something other than God's effectual call? Let's, th- let's say, think for a minute that we, let's say that the very first thing the divines talked about was adoption, our sonship, our, our sonship of the Father in Christ. What if that was the very first thing we considered? Then we'd be tempted towards a heresy of sonship theology. We'd think that because God viewed us as children, then he didn't care so much about our sins. He would simply look at us as a genial father looks at his children and appreciates what they do just because they're his. If we put sanctification first in all the works that God does in salvation, then we'd, be, we'd start heading towards Roman Catholicism that, looks, that takes, God's, that, that takes God, Christ's good works and the saints' good works and many other good works and infuse them into our heart makes us righteous, and then saves us on the basis of our righteousness, not Christ's. What if, what if they had put chapter 14 of saving faith right up at the top? Actually, many times salvation talked about that is right up at the top. Many times when the, when the gospel offer is made, it's made in such a way that, that we're told that we're capable of making it. We call that Arminianism, probably the most influential Christian heresy today. If faith comes first, then without, without the proper understanding of what God does to prepare us to receive not only salvation, but faith itself, if, faith is put, if our faith is put front and center, then it's, then it's, then it's a work that we can do to, uh, to take hold of God's salvation. And so the divines who wrote the confession were very clear that everything that would follow, everything that man, every response that man makes to the gospel comes from God first. And so that's why they buried faith all the way here in chapter 14. God initiates, God leads, God acts in salvation. Man merely responds, and even our response, even our right response is a gift from him. Titus 3 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who believe, have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So it is the spirit that gives faith and regeneration. Faith is, uh, the, so the first thing we should know following the order of the confession's thought is that faith is a grace, a divine gift from God. The most famous passage on faith in the, in the New Testament is from Ephesians 2. And the whole, uh, I'll read the whole section, verses 1 through 10, to get the, get the flow of Paul's argument. He tells us first that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Like Paul, the writers of the Confession, uh, they, can't, they can never stop. They never stop just at the faith or the resting upon Christ's salvation. They're always on to good works. And you'll see, we'll come to that chapter here in a couple weeks before too much longer. But also, like Paul, they want to stress, before we ever get to that point, this is by grace. This is by grace that you have received the faith that you need to cling to Christ in salvation. And it's not the work, it's not the work in ourselves. It's not letting go, it's not clearing our minds, it's not focusing, it's not believing in ourselves, it's not pulling up our bootstraps, it's not reaching out with our feelings. It is, it is a peace, a rest, and a trust in the Lord that the Spirit gives us in our hearts. Notice the word in section one there. It is the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe. God does not, God is choosy about who he gives his faith to. Not everyone. Uh, it goes only to God's elect. That passage I just read from Ephesians 2, uh, that famous passage on faith, follows an equally famous passage on predestination in Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, the view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the, fray, to the praise of his glory. Let me read a little bit more before that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, what, and, this is, and this is important to remember, it rubs us the wrong way. It rubs us the wrong way to think that this gift that is so necessary to our salvation it is not given to everyone, we think. That doesn't seem fair. But the first thing to remember is that God's plans are always accomplished. So when God makes the free offer of the gospel, he does it in his mind with those that he is going to save. Think about the alternative. Think about, um, think about if we... Think about if God had simply put out the offer of the gospel and he simply sat back somehow. Somehow the sovereign God just sat back and said, well, I don't know who's going to take this. Let's find out what happens. 
and simply those who had the fa- and simply those who had the faith in themselves took him up on it or didn't. It would be theoretically possible in such a plan for God's for, for Christ's work of redemption to have failed on the cross for no one to have taken up the offer. And that cannot be. That cannot be because God knew from before all time who he was to save and what the end result of his salvation was to be. And he had chose those in election uh, before it all began. In, in contrast to this, Arminianism teaches that the offer, they look at the free offer of the gospel, which we are commanded to make, and say that, all right, so the Lord, the Lord well, they don't say the Lord doesn't know. They say we don't know. Um, and we offer it to everybody, and it's up to the individual to make, uh, to make that choice. Now, the really faithful Arminian will say, we'll look at our depravity and sin, we'll recognize that we are incapable of making that choice, and they will scratch their heads for a bit. And they, will come up with, uh, and they will come up with a doctrine that is not found in Scripture called prevenient grace. Has anyone ever heard about this or encountered anyone who believes this? This blew my mind when I first read it. Um, because I, uh, I used to wonder how, uh, how Arminians got, you know, got around man's depravity, which they're usually very, very faithful in teaching. Prevenient grace is the belief that God, following Christ's death on the cross, or at some other point in redemptive history, I'm not entirely clear, God gave a certain a tiny measure of grace to everyone and gave at least some portion of their heart that was back, that was back in the garden, back in man's original innocency, and had the ability to choose again. And now, it was up to every man, woman, and child to make a choice once presented with the gospel. And they could go either way. I heard a pastor once, he was remembering sitting at a Billy Graham crusade. And uh, I, w- I want to be careful here. It's very easy for Presbyterians to rag on Pastor Graham. There will be hundreds of thousands of people in heaven because of, the, because of what Pastor Graham did. Um, free offer of the gospel that Christ commands us to make is very, very powerful, and it must be made, and he made it, and he made it faithfully in many ways. But he didn't always understand what he was offering. So this pastor I was listening to mentioned he was uh, listening to pa- Pastor Graham preach, and Pastor Graham says that uh, Pastor Graham was making a message, making an evangelistic message. He was telling people to come and accept the gospel, and he told them that the devil votes, God votes for you today, the devil votes against you, and the results are up to you now. It's your choice to make. But think back to what we've already talked about. If it was truly up to us, if cut out everything about regeneration, effectual calling, all we have is this little modicum, uh, little modicum of provenient grace, whatever that is, and a nature, a will, and a heart completely twisted and corrupted in sin, what will our reaction to the gospel be? Would any of us accept it? No, we wouldn't. Now, thankfully, nobody in here put up his or her hand and said, oh, I would have, um, because what would that have shown if you'd done that? It would have shown there's something about me. I'm special. I'm good. I'm smart. Whatever it is, I would have seen that and recognized that's a good deal that God's offered me right there. I would take it. But we've already established there are, none of us are good, none of us are righteous, all of us are fallen. And it takes more than just a little nudge in the right direction. It takes a total change of heart, and that's why the Spirit has to do it this morning. 
Now, before we leave this topic of election and the, applica- and the gift of faith to them, let's go back to what we agree on with the Arminians. Let's go, on, let's go back to what we, we agree with with, Pastor, uh, with Billy Graham uh, and practice far worse than he does. The gospel is to be offered to anyone because we don't know who will and will not choose it. And that is the great beauty. R.C. Sproul tells a wonderful story. He was, sitting, he was sitting in a seminary class with his mentor, John Gerstner. And Pastor Gerstner asked, uh, asked this room full of, of, uh, of solid Reformed Presbyterian students, if God elects those he is to save, why do we preach the gospel? So he, and, uh, and about a dozen or so students just went around the room sitting in a circle. And they all just looked at, looked at Dr. Gerstner and, said, and shrugged and said, you know, I've always wondered that. Why do we do that? And so they went all the way around the ring until they got to a young R.C. Sproul at the end. And R.C. Sproul just said, well, this is probably wrong, but is it because Jesus told us to? And and Dr. Gerstner looked at him and laughed and said, very good, Mr. Sproul. Your Lord and Savior, the God of the universe, told you to do something. Yes, you should probably go do it. And how do we do it? The confession speaks to this as well. The work is of the Spirit and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. I absolutely love it when the, West, the writers of the confession use the word ordinarily. It's a very Presbyterian word. This is how it usually works. We, don't, we're not going to, we're, we do not have the temerity to bind God's hands or say how it must always work. But this is how he's told us it usually goes down. It is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. It is by the word preached, heard, and applied to the heart by the spirit. And this echoes, again, this echoes the New Testament, that passage we read from uh, the latter half of Ephesians 1. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so they echo the same here. Faith comes by hearing. And that really cannot be stressed enough. This is why we preach the gospel. This is why we talk to our neighbors about Jesus. This is why we go out on the streets and witness to Spartanburg or in front of the mortuary in Greenville. This is, why we, this is why when we introduce our neighbors, you know, after the chit-chat and we talk and make sure they cheer for Clemson and make sure they're going to vote Republican, this is why we should be asking them, hey, do you have a church yet? We've been getting to do this. We've got a brand new neighborhood. We moved in before a lot of other people. They've been popping into, they've started been popping in all these new houses of ours. And it's been, uh, and it's wonderful how the conversation changes as soon as you ask that question. Because you either get, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we're plugged in. We go to, you know, XYZ church. Or else there's this awkward shuffling and staring at the toes like, well, I'm not very religious. We've heard that changes everything. Because, that's, because that, is where, that is where the power of the gospel touch it, first touches many people's lives. Just that simple invitation, hey, where do you go to church? That's a great way. By the way, that's a great, this is an aside. That's a great way to evangelize in the South. Many people scratch their heads uh, about how to talk about Jesus in the South, because everybody knows about Jesus down here. 
everybody thinks they're going to heaven. Everybody, um, everybody thinks that they've been to church, you know, at least twice a year. Their grandma read, their grandma read a passage of scripture to them, and they prayed a prayer, and they're good. They're covered. They got fire insurance. Uh, thank you very much. So, you know, so talk about Jesus. And then after that, you've heard the usual, you know, the usual um, good, you know, good Southerner responses. Ask them where they go to church. And you're gonna, what you're usually going to find, I've heard this, is, well, I don't go to church. I love Jesus, but his people drive me crazy. Or it's full of hypocrites. Or my favorite one is when they say, well, I heard, I heard a leader in the church say something bad about somebody else. And I don't want anything to do with that anymore. I don't want to be part of it. God forbid a Southerner would judge another Southerner. That's, this is a way to really, this is the way you press the claims of Christ down here, y'all, is you talk about the church. Uh, because if you're, if you're loving Jesus, you came to it through the ministry of the word, and you can't get enough of it. And you love it so much that you'll go put up with all the other wretched, miserable sinners who are sitting there listening alongside you, Right? So if you're not getting anywhere, just ask people what they think about church. And they'll either be excited, and you'll have a wonderful conversation talking about how wonderful their church is, and you can talk about how great your church is, and the work the Lord is doing in both. Or, or, they're gonna, or they'll start to tell you why they haven't been to church in 10 years, and what was, you know, who hurt their feelings and kept them out of it. Or, or they're going to church, but they don't really like it, and the people are mean, and, and on and on. And then you can press them. It's like, well, Jesus died for all those people. And if he died for you as you say you believe, why do you think he didn't die for those people as well? And then things will get really awkward real quick. And the work will have begun. Because that's what ordinary means. Ordinary means this. Ordinary means, means talking, uh, sharing the word briefly, and then inviting people to come and hear it more in depth. Now, what, what else does ordinarily mean? Ordinarily means that uh, in all humility, we don't know all the way the Lord works. We don't know how, um, you know, we don't know, um, we don't know how Nebuchadnezzar made such an ex- exceptional profession of faith in the book of Daniel. We know, uh, we don't know where he heard the word. We know the, we know the work the Lord did in him, turned him into a cow, basically, for a couple of months, and then his senses returned, and he praised the God of heaven. One of the most beautiful confessions of of God's lordship in the Old Testament. Uh, he wasn't going to church every Sunday, you know, like, like a good southern boy. How did the Lord work? Was there a prophet he spoke to at some point in there? Did the Spirit preach to him directly? We don't know. It's in God's hands, and it is good, however it worked. So we have that qualifier. We have that uh, humble qualifier ordinarily in there. And then they, may, they go on to mention the administration of the sacraments and prayer by which faith is increased and strengthened. These are what we call the means of grace. These are the usual elements, the ordinary elements, by which God takes his people whom he has saved and continues to build and grow that faith in them. Because when faith grows, it's evidence in our response to the preaching of the word and in and in the, the claims of Christ made in it. It says in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being believed, 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a good metric for your own faith, and that for the faith of those you're trying to minister to. How does your heart respond to the word when it is read and preached. And that is a good segue into section two of the confession. Section two begins, by this faith, a Christian, believe, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaking therein. That would have been enough to say just that, but I love how they elaborate upon that in the next, in the next few clauses. For the authority of God himself speaking therein and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the, but the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. I love that. I love that res- I love how it describes our response to the Word of God. It's not like we just flip it open, read it, and like, oh, yeah, I believe that. Although that's remarkable enough. Because some of us can remember a time when we read either large portions of the Bible or specific passages and said, I don't get that, I don't like that, that rubs me the wrong way. It's not so, just the fact of agreeing with Scripture is remarkable enough. And yet it says that we respond so much differently. When the scriptures bring God's threatenings, when it speaks of his judgment, we tremble, we quake, we cry, we worry, we fret over these things. Uh, I've been tempted throughout preparation for this lesson to go on and start talking about assurance of salvation, but we're going to have to wait. That'll be up in a couple of, chap- in a couple of weeks. Um, we're gonna, but we'll touch on it here at the end of this. When it, um, I would lay awake at night worrying I committed the unforgivable sin when I read about those passages, and just worrying about, you know, uh, worrying about, you know, worrying, what if I have cursed the Holy Spirit in my mind and my heart? What if I've said it out loud? And that's it. That's it for me. I'm done. And I remember my dad talking to me late at night and saying, you know, the fact that you're, so, that you're scared of that shows that the Lord has given faith in your heart already. Because that's what a Christian does. A Christian trembles when God speaks. You know, if we're presumptuous, if a, if a man is presumptuous and says, well, I'm saved, so I don't have to worry about any of that stuff, he's the one who needs to look to his own heart. Because a Christian trembles, even a Christian who's saved and redeemed and enjoys God's blessing, still trembles when he sees God's judgment. Either the judgment that has passed by missed himself, or the judgment he sees being applied to his neighbors, he trembles and grieves. And that is the faith, and that is the faith in his heart, working through the Holy, being wrought by the Holy Spirit. When God commands something, Christians' hearts are, tr- are tender, and they move, they move to follow what is said. Again, we have to be careful here. We're, we're, we're getting off into a future chapter, faith and the relationship between faith and good works. 
So for now, let's just put it that way. God says something, our ears prick up. We listen. We want to know. We want to, th- you know, we want to hear what he has to say and what we should do because he's the one saying it. And above all, it, a Christian embraces the promises of God for this life and that which is to come, especially in the primary work, uh, the primary work of faith, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by the covenant of grace. And what are they doing here but pulling together everything we've talked about up to this point and saying, this is it. This is the peace that is given to you by which all the rest of this is made possible. The fact that you are declared righteous, the fact that you are adopted and brought into, gathered in God's loving embrace as part of his family, the, the work of sanctification that is accomplished and continues throughout your life by which you love his commands and follow them, it, all, uh, it is all thanks to the faith that he gives you in which you accept, receive, and rest upon Christ for salvation. All part of the covenant of grace. All that's promised to his people. That's how the covenant of grace that we saw that we saw developed and established between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is accomplished by this precious gift that's given to us. There's a lot more to be said here, but I have, a, I have one more story I want to finish with before we end today. So I'd like to move on to section three. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong. Now listen to this. I think this might be one of the most underrated but amazing portions of the confession. This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, maybe often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory. Growing up in many to the attainment of full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Now, as I mentioned already, we're going to talk about assurance later. We're going to talk about that little line um, in many, uh, that many achieve that full assurance. We're going to talk about that in chapter 18 here in a couple of weeks. But what I want to focus on is faith, uh, faith comes in degrees. It is strong in some, it is weak in others. It is strong in ourselves at points, and our faith weak, is weak and uh, weak and failing at other times. Even within ourselves, we see both of these things, particularly as it's assailed, uh, and, and assailed and we are afflicted by our sin, by the devil, by the world around us, by all these things. Faith can ebb and flow. And yet this is not a, and it's not a situation, and yet... This is where I want you to see a contrast between what we, looked, what we heard from Star Wars this morning. Well, what we tried to hear from Star Wars this morning. Where it is all about the strength of our belief that accomplishes what, uh, that accomplishes what we need to. Uh, I, was tempted to. I was tempted to pull quotes from a couple other movies other than Star Wars. Um, does anyone remember The Matrix? We're going way back, late 90s. Do you all remember that scene? Remember the scene where, he, where Neo, Keanu Reeves, you know, the world's greatest actor, when he was, uh, he was going to the Oracle to find out just how special he was, and there's a kid on the, on the floor with a spoon, bending spoons with his mind, and he tells Neo, do not bend the spoon, that is impossible. Only, see the t- only try to see the truth. Uh, only try to bend yourself. And so Neo's staring at the spoon, and he kind of tilts his head looking at it, and the spoon bends with him. He believe, you know, this belief in himself... I think one of the most, I think one of the, the baldest expressions of worldly faith was from a more obscure science fiction movie called Serenity. 
And this is where the, the lead character is cradling his mentor in his arms. And his mentor reaches up and grabs him by the back of the neck and just says, uh, he says, I don't care what you believe in, just believe it. Every time I hear that line, I'm just like, is anyone satisfied by that? But that's not a one-off. I hear that so many times. It's not, it's not, it doesn't matter what you believe in. It's the strength and the depth of your conviction. That's what will change you for the better, it said. I want to read a passage as we get ready to close from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. And this is from the second half, the, highly, the, uh, the often overlooked second part two of Pilgrim's Progress. So for content, and those of you who've talked to me before know I'm always saying you've got to read all of Pilgrim's Progress because you've only heard half the story if you only get to Christian and faithful at the gay celestial city. Christian and faithful, they struggle. They have a hard time. They, bear, they get there by the skin of their teeth, barely. It, by the king's grace, dragging them every step of the way. They're, Christian's equipped to fight, and his one great battle, the best you can say is that he survives. Um, Christiana leaves, and she's just as timid and afraid and afflicted as her husband was when she went. But around her, the king gathers shepherds and protectors and other, you know, and other pilgrims along the way. So by the time she gets there, it's a throng of people. They've not, and they've not only made it, they've slain giants, they've cast down strongholds, they've, they've saved other pilgrims from captivity. What do we see in that? We see salvation with one person growing into the community of faith in the church. The ordinary means by which we're all brought to Lustil City. And so, um, so I'm going to be reading a passage from uh, a dialogue between Mr. Greatheart, the great shepherd, the great protector of Christiana and her company on the way to Celestial City. And as they're leaving, as they're leaving a house, uh, a house of welcome for the pilgrims, a man named Mr. Feeblemind comes out. Now, Mr. Feeblemind, when they were going out of the door, made as if he intended to linger. The which, when Mr. Greatheart espied, when Mr. Greatheart noticed this, he said, Come, Mr. Feeblemind, pray do you go along with us. I will be your conductor, and you shall fare as the rest. And this is the Feeble's self, extremely honest and self-aware uh, testimony of himself. He says, alas, I want a suitable companion. You are all lusty and strong, but I, as you see, am weak. I choose, therefore, rather to come behind, lest by reason of my many infirmities I should be both a burden to myself and to you. I am, as I said, a man of weak and feeble mind, and shall be offended and made weak at that which others can bear. I shall like no laughing. I shall like no gay attire. I shall like no unprofitable questions. Nay, I am so weak a man as to be offended with that which others have a liberty to do. I do not yet know all the truth. I am a very ignorant Christian man. Sometimes if I hear any rejoice in the Lord, it troubles me because I cannot do so too. It is with me as it is with a weak man among the strong, or as with a sick man among the healthy, or as a lamp despised. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease, so that I, do, I know not what to do. And Greatheart replies, But brother, said Mr. Greatheart, I have it in commission to comfort the feeble-minded and to support the weak. You must needs go along with us. We will wait for you. We will lend you our help. We will deny ourselves of some things both opinionative and practical for your sake. We will not enter into doubtful disputations before you. We will be made all things to you rather than you shall be left behind. And now all this while they were at Gaius' door. And behold, as they were thus in the heat of their discourse, Mr. Ready to Halt came by with his crutches in his hand. And he also was going on pilgrimage. Then said Mr. Feeblemind to him, How camest thou hither? 
I was but now complaining that I had not a suitable companion, but thou art according to my wish. Welcome, welcome, good Mr. Ready to Halt. I hope thou and I may be some help. I shall be glad of thy company, said the other. And good Mr. Feeble Mind, rather than we will part, since we are thus happily met, I will lend thee one of my crutches. Nay, said he, said Mr. Feeble Mind, though I thank thee for, <coughs> for thy good will, I, will not, I am not inclined to halt before I am lame. Howbeit, I think when the occasion is, it may help me against a dog. And then Mr. Ready to Halt says, If either myself or my crutches can do thee a pleasure, we are both at thy command, good Mr. Feeble Mind. Thus, therefore, they went on. Mr. Greatheart and Mr. Honest went before. Christiana and her children went next. And Mr. Feeble Mind came behind with Mr. De Ready Halt with his crutches. Mr. Feeble Mind likens himself. <clears throat> I feel like Mr. Feeble Mind myself up here. <clears throat> Mr. Feeble Mind likens himself to a sick man amongst the healthy. He is on pilgrimage, his eyes, as it were, are pointed in the right direction as he walks to the light of celestial city. But he says, I have so much to learn. <coughs> and that pattern as established at the end, Mr. Feeble Mind, Mr. Ready to Halt, stumbling along behind the rest of the company. That, that is the way it is all the way for the rest of the journey. But at the end, Mr. Feeble Mind lays aside his feeble mind that has hindered him for so long. Mr. Ready to Halt lays down his crutches at the edge of the river of death. And arm in arm, they make their way over the river of death into the celestial city, just as surely as the other stronger Christians who've gone before them. And is that not a beautiful thing? It's not the strength of our faith. It's not the depth. There is value in that. There is importance in that. We need that in the church. But for salvation, the Lord needs only that mustard seed that he, that he gives. Because why is that? <clears throat> Boy, I'm glad it's not an hour-long lesson. Um, the Lord gives just the strength that's needed for the work that he calls us to do. And so unlike, uh, so unlike the worldly and the mystic views of faith that tell us to look within ourselves, to empty ourselves, to, to empty ourselves, to clear our minds, to free our minds, going back to Matrix quotes, that tells us that anything, that anything is possible if we follow our hearts, if we believe enough. The Lord says, it's not how much you believe, it's who you believe in. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, it's not the depth or the quality or the perfection of our faith, but it is the object of our faith that truly matters here. Because what we would believe, because the most important thing that we can remember here is that even weak faith is sufficient for salvation. It's not the strength of our faith, but it's object that accomplishes salvation. When George Lucas was, was writing Star Wars, he didn't want to just have spaceships and laser swords. He wanted a sense of transcendence. That's what makes, uh, that's what makes good movies compelling. 
there's something greater than ourselves that's being served, uh, that's being tapped into. And so he knew that because he was, he was a gifted storyteller. He wanted something. So we dug around into Eastern mysticism and pulled out many, many ancient, you know, ancient foolishness uh, to pack into his story. But it tells us all the truth that we know that we, about ourselves and about all mankind. We yearn to believe. We want to believe. Even fallen and corrupted by sin, we are more than just rational, sentient animals. We're more than just upright apes walking through this life. Animals stare straight ahead. They look for sleep and food and sex, and that's about it. We, look that we, we are the same of them in those ways. But we also look up. The soul within our hearts makes us wonder, makes us yearn, what else is out there? Who else is up there? But that desire can only be filled, and belief can only be satisfied with the gift of faith from our God in heaven today. Amen? Then let's pray and prepare to worship the God of our faith. Heavenly Father, you've not called many great or mighty to your service. You've called the weak and the lowly to yours. And Lord, you've given the faith that we need to not only draw us to yourselves, but you've equipped some of us with a little faith more to do, th to do additional work for you on this pilgrimage. All through the gift of faith that your spirit works in us. So that, Lord, when we do great things, when great things are done by us, will not be by us. It will be you who receives all the glory. Lord, we pray we come before you this morning and give you all the glory that you so richly deserve. Heavenly Father, we are weak and feeble and stumbling even today. Lord, the praises received uh, that we give you uh, would not be acceptable, save for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his intercession, which makes him pleasing to you. And therefore, we pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> 